That legendarily overripe melody, part of the 18th variation from Rachmaninoff's Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini, hardly seems modern in any way. But it's by someone who was fascinated by modernity. For example, Rachmaninoff loved the latest modern architecture, even helping to design his own astonishing home on Lake Lucerne. It looks rather like the works of Frank Lloyd Wright, remarkably avant-garde and even rather fashionable for the 1930s, with a flat roof, white walls and huge plate-glass windows. Stone steps lead down from the garden to a boathouse where Rachmaninoff kept his latest motor launch, and in the garage he housed his smart American cars. This was a man who loved aeroplanes and ocean liners. But Rachmaninoff was a modernist in another more serious way. When he left Russia immediately after the 1917 revolution, he left behind the old way of life and the old way of writing music. In effect, he reinvented himself. He became the most famous pianist in the Western world and one of the most highly paid performers of his time, playing for the most part programs of quite popular music. And for the last 25 years of his life, he wrote very little new music of his own. And what he did write just half a dozen pieces or so, is composed in a new way, brusque, laconic, theatrical, sometimes witty, sometimes darkly ironic, and almost neoclassical in its self-consciousness. Rachmaninoff wrote his rhapsody on a theme of Paganini in Switzerland in 1934. It's essentially a set of variations on the appallingly memorable tune from the 24th Caprice by that legendary violinist. In one way, the rhapsody's typical Rachmaninoff, not least in its dazzling solo piano part. In another way, it's different from almost everything else he ever wrote. It's clearly the work of that reinvented Rachmaninoff I was talking about. Listen to that opening again. Gone is all the Russian romantic space and atmosphere of, say, the Second Symphony. This is almost ridiculously perfunctory music, noisy, even crude. And yet it's not actually as crude as all that. Although most music lovers have probably heard that opening many times, I wonder how many have stopped to listen carefully to what's being played. Listen to the bass line in the lower strings. That's rather odd, and the reason is it's not an ordinary major or minor scale but an octatonic mode, the artificial non-tonal scale used by Russian composers like Rimsky-Korsakov and Stravinsky, traditionally to suggest theatrical magic. It's a scale Messiaen later used to conjure up some very strange harmonies, and Rachmaninoff's harmonies here are quite strange too. Listen to them first played on the piano, just so you can hear the notes more clearly.
and now hear those same chords played as Rachmaninoff wrote them on the strings, only a little slower. Amidst those chords, Rachmaninoff adds an emphatic piano part. And just to throw us towards the end, this little interrupting shriek from the woodwind, brass and lower strings. And all that is woven around the catchy opening notes of Paganini's famous tune. That's quite a peculiar opening, and I'll come back to those curiously unexpected harmonies a little later in the programme. They prove to be very important. But for the moment, I'd just like to ask one question about those few opening bars. What is the music's tone of voice? It's a crucial question, I think, in relation to the whole of the Paganini Rhapsody. After all, various models for this piece immediately suggest themselves. Liszt's Totentanz, perhaps or The Sorcerer's Apprentice, or even Till Eulenspiegel. And all those pieces, well, we might call them macabre camp. There almost seems to be a spirit of parody here, and that certainly ties in with what Rachmaninoff himself said about the piece. After he'd written it, he set about persuading the great choreographer Fokin to turn it into a ballet, about the legend of Paganini, complete with the devil, a mysterious woman, and, at the end, Paganini being torn to bits by his enemies. Rachmaninoff's letter to Fokin even speaks of the need to create absolute caricatures. This first variation is certainly full of jokes. In the first place, Rachmaninoff calls it just that, the first variation. We haven't got to the theme yet. That comes later. And what a variation it is. Almost like a parody of the opening of the last movement of Beethoven's Eroica Symphony, it strips the theme down to its barest bones. <laughs> Only at the end does this skeleton give a little hollow laugh, a version of that shriek we heard at the end of the introduction. This first variation achieves several things. It proposes a kind of ideal simplicity, a very clear rhythm, a very clear shape. And into that simplicity and clarity intrudes just one alien element, a theatrical laugh, a little chromatic scale, a touch of the elaborate. It's as though Rachmaninoff were laying down the rules of the game. Every variation will consist of something very simple, counterbalanced or answered by something else more complicated, saucier and more colourful. This second element disturbs the simplicity and integrity of the first, provoking a reaction like the grit in an oyster. This is the neoclassicist in Rachmaninoff, 
that unexpected irony I mentioned at the start. Remember, it's the 1930s when neoclassicism was at its height. Bach with wrong notes, Mozart with wrong notes, or in Rachmaninoff's case, Paganini. Here is the original Paganini. And here's how Rachmaninoff now presents it, the violins playing more or less what Paganini wrote, and the piano making out the shape of that skeleton we heard in the opening. But although this is supposed to be the theme we're hearing, Rachmaninoff can't resist adding a last laugh, spicing up the harmony. And the laughter continues into the opening of the next variation. We asked our pianist to exaggerate a little so you could really hear that. The skeleton accompaniment seems to be laughing too. It hiccups back and forth between horn and trumpet before disappearing into the woodwind. Put that against the piano and Paganini's theme takes on a colourful, even lurid guise. and freshness in Rachmaninoff's writing there. The texture's almost transparent. And that's partly what makes this music so modern to our ears. And something similar happens in the next variation. The piano plays luminous octaves. In the orchestral part, chattering woodwind, beautifully spaced. Is combined with dancing strings. As a combination, it sounds almost like Mendelssohn. Strong hints of neoclassicism again. the mood shifts and Paganini's theme sets off in a different direction. In fact, as time goes on, there gradually comes to seem something rather odd in the way Rachmaninoff endlessly repeats it. As he plays with it, toys with it, turns it over, decorates it, a disconcerting aura seems to come over the music, 
rather like the calm before the storm. It's almost as though, and this is an old dramatic device, something else has to happen. Even if we don't sense that yet, there's soon no mistaking it. The piano soloist seems almost to be slipping into a trance, as if looking for ways to escape the almost headlong rhythm of everything we've heard so far. And sure enough, in the very next variation, something does happen. What a curious combination this is. The Paganini theme on the bassoon and strings in the background, and over it, a new theme in the piano. It's that hoary old favourite of composers, the Dies Irae plain chant, theatrical token of death. That Dies Irae melody was a good friend to Rachmaninoff and appears in many of his works. But actually, the Dies Irae and the Paganini tunes are closely connected. Let me show you what I mean. Here, more or less, is the harmonic skeleton of the original Paganini as we've come to hear it. Now switch the upper two voices at the start of that outline, and you get this. And it's a mere skip from that to the Dies Irae theme itself as it first appears in the solo piano part. By deriving the Dies Irae from the Paganini theme, Rachmaninoff achieves more than just a deft trick, for he turns the harmony into a parody of church music, though oddly it's a parody of Russian church music rather than the Roman Catholicism normally associated with this tune. Rachmaninoff only states the Dies Irae boldly in four of the variations in the Rhapsody, two at this point and two towards the end but the simplicity and ambiguity of the simple chord progression which the chant shares with the Paganini mean that you'd be forgiven for hearing the tunes suggested all over the place even when it's not obvious, rather like a stage villain hiding behind the scenery in a Christmas pantomime. And this first appearance of the Dies Irae seems to serve another purpose too. It's as if the new theme introduces a different impulse into the piece, prompting the argument to venture into more remote regions.
That's a striking shift with a new sense of drive and rhythm. And listen to the orchestral writing of the next variation, violins and violas rattling the strings with the backs of their bows. The piano part is placed in the gaps between those chords. Now the harmonies and rhythms become really strange. The distorted chords of the very opening are coming back to haunt us. And that brings to an end the first part of the Paganini Rhapsody. I say first part, but there's no such marking in the score. This Rhapsody, which Rachmaninoff first thought of calling symphonic variations, appears to be in a single movement. Nonetheless, in effect, it falls into three movements, just like one of Rachmaninoff's piano concertos. Fast, slow, fast. The theme and first ten variations make up what amounts to the first movement, all in one key, though with some strange harmonic twists, as we've heard. And then comes this dramatic pause, the first moment of silence in the piece. With the eleventh variation, the central, more or less slow movement begins. This is the section of the work in which, according to his somewhat cheesy scenario suggestion to Fokin, Rachmaninoff proposed that Paganini meets someone he calls a woman. But never mind her. What's clear is that now a spirit of improvisation and flexible transition takes over from the relative simplicity and strictness of nearly every variation so far. With each harmonic move Rachmaninoff now makes, the ground shifts beneath our feet.
With that last flourish, we find ourselves deposited in a new key and a new rhythmic world too, tempo di minuetto. This is neoclassicism of another kind, an elegant dance, not pastiche, but a sort of Hollywood evocation of a vanished era. This is Rachmaninoff at his most American. Before you accuse me of mocking Rachmaninoff, let me make clear that I think this sort of nostalgic reinvention is precisely what makes the piece so marvellous, indeed all of late Rachmaninoff so marvellous, for the range of his interests had by this time expanded far beyond the late Romanticism of his early Russian years. This is the Rachmaninoff who could go to the first performance in Paris of the latest ballet by Prokofiev or Stravinsky or find himself entertained by film stars at barbecues in California. He took it all with a pinch of salt, of course. He had, as his niece said, a fine sense of humour, and a fine sense of what sounds gorgeous. Throughout this so-called middle movement, Rachmaninoff keeps restlessly changing key. After so much music in the minor, we're off to major keys, and by this stage in the piece, he's taking what one might call bleeding liberties with the original Paganini tune. In fact, he's turned it upside down and squashed it, first like this... ..then soon after, like this... This has quite an effect on the character of the music, as though the very meaning of the tune were changing. point, Rachmaninoff allows himself something he's so far avoided, a sustained cadenza for piano alone, filled with the chromatic laughter we first heard at the beginning of the work, and which keeps coming back, even if only glancingly at times.
Eventually, the harmony makes another shift, and we move this time into B flat minor, a semitone above, but psychologically miles away from the A minor of the rest of the piece. But Rachmaninoff is still having fun. Listen to how stagey he makes this piece of musical scene shifting. This 16th variation again contains much of what we might expect in a middle movement. Hushed strings, fragmented textures, and most importantly, an almost meditative treatment of the original Paganini melody. If you listen, say, to these bars on their own, the orchestra without the piano, you can hear that Rachmaninoff has built a kind of echo chamber. Different scraps and fragments of Paganini's tune are wandering around in different parts of the orchestra. And all at different speeds. With the harmony moving again, it's a good moment for Rachmaninoff to remind us of the Paganini theme, but this time of the skeletal version we heard right at the start. Which we now hear in the new key as the backdrop to some more magical scene shifting. It's the most famous moment in the piece, the spectacular appearance of that 18th variation we heard right at the start. At this point, there's an intriguing question to ask: What is this supposedly middle-brow romantic melody that everyone remembers, and which they think comes out of nowhere? Why, it's not much more than a neat neoclassical transformation of that same old Paganini tune. Now that Rachmaninoff's arrived at this moment of lyrical climax. And turned the Paganini theme upside down in the process. He just needs to squash it one more time. Except, of course, that it's not that easy. Rachmaninoff's tricked us, and a simple idea sounds like something completely new, and beautiful. And if you don't find it beautiful, you can turn your radio off right now.
sorry to spoil it, but it's worth listening to that tune just as it is for once, rather than reaching for your handkerchief the moment the strings come in. And it's also worth asking another question about this music: Where has Rachmaninoff found these strange, distant keys and harmonies that he keeps wandering into? The answer tells us so much about this composer and the way he thought, for the clue lies right back in the opening bars, and in those eight oddly off-center chords with their octatonic scale in the bass. The first two chords there, by the magic of harmony. Lead discreetly but naturally to the D minor of the minuet we heard earlier. The next two chords from the opening outline the key of the sixteenth and seventeenth variations. B flat minor. And the next two chords give us D flat major. The remote key of this famous 18th variation. The self-consciousness and indeed the simplicity of the way Rachmaninoff derives so much of what he does in this piece out of the opening notes is striking, and decidedly so if you think of Rachmaninoff as a romantic rhapsodizer rather than as he was a careful musical craftsman. The famous 18th variation marks the end of the slow movement part of this piece. It's now time to get back to the home key and to what we could call the last movement, with another of those stagey shifts Rachmaninoff enjoys so much. The composer himself certainly saw this moment as stagey. In his famous letter to Fokine, he wrote, "The 19th variation is the triumph of Paganini's art, his devilish pizzicato." It would be a good idea to see Paganini with his violin, not a real one, of course, but some sort of invented, fantastic one.
There's a feeling now that the music is gathering speed and impetus, and not just because the notes themselves are getting quicker. Out of the 24 variations of the Paganini Rhapsody, what we call the first movement consisted of 10 variations, the second movement of 8, and now the last consists of 6. Rachmaninoff's incorporated a deceptively simple process of acceleration, and naturally, as we approach the end, the matter of transitions between variations becomes ever more important, each tumbling into the next. And there's no respite in the next variation, as tiny scraps of the Paganini theme are thrown around in the orchestral texture. Once again, and in a most theatrical way, there's a sense that something else is going to happen, and that sense is clearest in the bass part, underneath all that noise. It's an old rhetorical trick, I suppose you could say, just a shaking back and forth between the home key and the note below. But what it's doing, apart from being rhetorical, is heralding one last shift into a remote area of harmony. It's a stagey shift, and a difficult one, but clearly directed. And so we arrive in another territory, E-flat major, in the scheme of things, a long, long way from home. And as though to stress that idea, the piano keeps hammering out the same distant point of arrival. The orchestra, meanwhile, is driven towards its own emphatic cadence. With one final flourish, the new key is hammered home. What is the point of this struggle into a remote key? The answer, once again, lies way back in the opening of the piece. Where that bittersweet and dissonant seventh chord suggests exactly the harmonic area the rhapsody has reached here in the 22nd variation. The orchestra even interrupts with another of Rachmaninoff's theatrical jokes, trying to drag the piano back into the proper key. But the pianist, the Paganini figure if you like, or rather the Rachmaninoff figure, is implacable. He swings the short distance to A-flat minor, precisely the key we heard signalled earlier by the galumphing bass. 
The lower of those two notes is where the pianist has now arrived. But finally, as you heard there, the orchestra does get the upper hand, and it puts to an end all this harmonic fun and games. Now we're back in the home key of A minor, and here we stay until the end of the piece, albeit with some jolly odd decorations and side slips on the way. After all, despite the clever planning, this is no Brahms concerto. It's meant to be fun to listen to, even perhaps if you share Rachmaninoff's zest and sense of humour, funny. The composer's letter to Fokin makes it clear that he saw the penultimate variation as a kind of fight to the death between the soloist and orchestra, a brilliant celebration and send-up of all those thrilling battles between soloist and orchestra in the grand romantic concerto repertoire, and he even adds a cadenza. You might think that such fireworks would be enough for the pianist to end with, but the composer is merciless on himself, for he wrote this piece for his own concert tours. Now the piano writing in this final variation is just ridiculously difficult. The right hand has to leap and jump in a way that most pianists can only guess at. We asked our pianist to play it a little more slowly. That way, you can really get an idea of how fiendish it is. The great pianist Moisevich used to tell a story of how he once persuaded the usually non-drinking Rachmaninoff to try a glass of creme de menthe. On the grounds that the horrifying leaps in this variation would become a little easier under the influence of that sticky concoction, Moisevich claimed that Rachmaninoff was so delighted with this discovery that ever afterwards the composer would take a glass of creme de menthe before playing this music. That sounds like another old chestnut. But before we finish, here is Rachmaninoff himself negotiating the passage only months after he'd finished composing it. With or without creme de menthe, that's an astonishing performance. Besides the Moisevich story, there's another very good reason for hearing that recording. In the course of the last forty minutes, we've been trying to get closer not just to the Paganini Rhapsody, but to Rachmaninoff himself. His performance serves as a reminder that by this stage in his life, he was internationally known as a popular entertainer, as well as one of the most highly regarded pianists of his age. People who mock Rachmaninoff, and in particular those who mock this piece, usually do so because they think the music is vulgar and not serious. And I suppose both those comments are correct, except that they aren't criticisms. They're the whole point of this music. Rachmaninoff was indeed an entertainer, and unashamedly so. But there's something else too. 
This piece may be often light-hearted and vulgar, but behind those surface qualities are always present other qualities, qualities that sprang from Rachmaninoff's fundamental character as a man and as a musician. The man who wrote the Paganini Rhapsody was a man obsessed with musical discipline, order and control, a man determined to let the music speak for itself, but always in the shortest and tersest way, and laced not with creme de menthe, but with a spirit of wit, joy, laughter, self-mockery, and also a darker tone of human sympathy. Not to mention an unyielding rhythmic impulse and a bright, hard-edged harmonic and melodic clarity. This is Rachmaninoff, the neoclassical artist, Rachmaninoff, the modernist, and always with the last laugh. Thank you.